So, this is episode two of The Science Behind Your Salad with me, Jane Craigie. Last month we celebrated the tomato, and this time we're back with a different type of ingredient, rice. Rice is a staple food for more than half of the world's population, and it's so versatile. Obviously it forms a big part of many meals. India is famous for basmati rice, it's in many Chinese dishes, the key ingredients for sushi are rice and raw fish, but also it's the vital part of risotto, burritos, to name just a fraction of the dishes in which it features. And yes, it features in salads too. But before this episode, I really didn't know much about the crop. Martin, the producer of the series, he's here once again. So Martin, what's your rice knowledge like? It's quite clear that my knowledge of rice is very limited. And this became very apparent to me when I spoke to, I spoke to someone from Erie, and we'll hear a lot of uh, Erie in this episode. It's the International Rice Research Institute. And we were discussing about ways that we cook rice. And I explained how I cooked rice and they all laughed at me and said, oh my goodness me, that sounds absolutely revolting. It sounds like you're, you're drowning it in some kind of boggy mess. Um, so I, again, that sort of highlighted my lack of knowledge. I don't know a huge amount, Martin. I mean, I, I've, I've never been to a paddy field. Um, the closest link that I probably have to a paddy field is my dad was stationed um, on the Chinese um, border in Hong Kong in, in the early 1960s. So I don't profess to know much. But thankfully, we know somebody who knows quite a lot about rice. And I think I'll give her a call, Martin. Great idea. Hi, Shuling, how are you? So good to see you. How's Germany? Everything's fine. It's very nice. It's sunny today. And Shuling, I was really intrigued. What did you say to me when you picked up the phone? If we meet at lunch and dinner time among Chinese uh, on the street, we greet each other. This means, how are you? So this is a uh, um, uh, means in direct translation. You have have you had your meal? Indeed, the Chinese word meal means mi fan, cooked rice. And the rice in China called da mi is not a plant but daily food. And Shiling, um, for our listeners, you're living in Germany now, but you are from China originally. Whereabouts? I was born and grew up in northern um, part of China. A lot of direct seeded rice is growing in this area. And as a crop, how important is rice in China and where is it grown? As far as I know, there are um, at least two kinds of the rice growing area. This is one is the north part of China, northeastern part of China. This is the area for direct seeded rice. And uh, the border, um, I think, between the direct seeded rice and the paddy rice is the, uh, the, the Yellow River. In the southern part of the Yellow River, it uh, starts to grow the paddy rice. And Shiling, how important is rice in your culture? So it is part of our life. And uh, there is um, some old Chinese sayings, if you want to uh, be happy for one day, get drunk. If you want to be happy for one year, get married. If you want to have a happy life, eat rice every day. 
<laughs> it's fantastic. So this is the importance. It's a lovely relationship with with a food that is is so important. And I think it's not just in China, all over the world, the, the, in cultures that, that eat a lot of rice, it is, it's almost hailed as, uh, as, as the most important part of life, isn't it? Every kind of rice has their own taste. This uh, uh, maybe not known in Europe, you know, you are tasting wine, you are tasting the olive oil, but really we also taste different rice in Asia, in China. And Shuling, what's your favorite rice dish? We make a very famous salad. We also eat it uh, mostly during Chinese New Year. Rice noodle with slices of uh, Chinese cabbage, slices of cucumber, slices of carrots, and more. That's a special Chinese mushroom. And you can put also fried slices of meat or the eggs into the salad. Traveling around the world, I got to know also uh, the other rice noodle salad uh, in Asia. For example, one of my favorites is the Thai rice noodle salad with shrimps and spring onion. Or the Thai rice noodle salad uh, with papaya with um, peanut sauce. So these are my favorite rice salads. And now my mouth is really watering. With so much rice featuring as a main staple food in so many countries, not to mention the way the food has entered culture through language, tradition and ceremony, in order to do rice justice, we have decided to make two episodes on the crop. In the first part, we'll be talking about culture and the ways in which rice has grown today across the globe. And then in the second part, we'll be looking at some of the scientific breakthroughs that help farmers to grow rice as they face the challenges farmers of all crops face more mouths to feed along with farming in an ever-changing climatic context. We believe that it's another opportunity, if you will, to deliver improved nutrition in the form of uh, a very simple foodstuff that people consume in relatively large quantities. It's like delivering a little vitamin pill with each meal of rice that they have. But first, Rika Joy Floor is a scientist from IRI. That's a name you'll be hearing a lot of during this episode. IRI is the International Rice Research Institute. Based in the Philippines, it's known for its work in developing rice varieties that contributed to the Green Revolution in the 1960s. That set out to improve crop yields and feed a growing global population. As well as being a scientist, Rika is an anthropologist, and so when we chatted, I wanted to find out about rice and its cultural role. The word rice is interspersed in everyday conversation. In Myanmar, for example, the statement, Taminsala, is used to ask, how are you? But literally, it also means, have you eaten rice? The word for rice in different countries is strongly associated with eating a meal. For example, the Japanese word for cooked rice is the same as the word for meal. In Cambodia, when they invite for a meal, they say nyambai, which is literally eat rice. Please could you tell us a little bit about how rice has become part of traditions around the world? There are cultures that worship a rice goddess, such as in parts of Indonesia and Thailand, the respect for this deity associates rice with fertility and the provision of food 
which is considered vital for the survival of the society. In most Southeast Asian countries, the traditional art forms such as dances and folk songs would feature rice. It could be a dance about rice planting or a song that describes the festivities of harvest. In important events such as wedding, rice is prominent as a decoration that displays meaning such as wealth and prosperity. It's a shower to bring good luck. Many wedding guests in the Philippines may go home dissatisfied if there was no rice served at the reception. Rice is the first food a new Indian bride offers her husband, often during the wedding itself. Lastly, rice is sometimes a signal for the routines in a society. For example, an important holiday in Cambodia is the royal plowing ceremony, a day in the year where the king and various high officials view the plowing of a rice field. The occasion, which is a non-working holiday, marks the start of the agricultural year for the whole country. What are the different types of rice and how many different varieties are there around the world? There are many different types of rice. In Erie's Rice Gene Bank, we have around 132,000 accessions. Now, just to clarify, accessions are different from varieties in that accession is a genetic material with a unique accession number. For a single variety, the Erie Gene Bank may have multiple accessions, one for each genetic material sourced from a specific place at a unique time. But this number of more than 132,000 indicates how many different types of rice there are in the world. Countries from all over the world send their rice to Erie for safekeeping and for sharing for the common public good. In 1962, Erie started a collection of rice genetic resources. Then, in 1971, the International Rice Gene Bank was officially established. An important example of the usefulness of a gene bank is the case of Cambodia. After the Civil War and the Khmer Rouge era, Cambodia lost not only its seed supply but also many of its varieties. From the gene bank, Iri then sent back to the country and helped to multiply local varieties after the political turmoil. And that question remains, how do you cook perfect rice? Equal parts of rice and water I would then bring this to a boil and allow the water to evaporate over low heat. The rice is then perfectly soft, but not like porridge. One steamed rice that I ate many years ago in Laos still stands out in my memory as my favorite. It was aromatic and sticky traditional Lao variety that was steamed inside a basket. And when I opened it, the smell of the rice was so good and I was immediately hungry. Shuling. What do you think about Rika's description of cooking the perfect rice? So I use also rice cooker yeah, all the time. And I think the most important thing in cooking rice, you wash the rice firstly. And because if you wash the rice, the rice corns have shine. And secondly, the, uh, the, the quantity of the water, the uh, absorption of the rice, uh, of different rice are different. I think that's the two, two things if you want to have a very good cooked rice. It's hard to think of a crop with as much cultural significance as rice, and more than 100 countries grow it from Southeast Asia to the USA, via Australia and Italy. But for rice growers, great challenges lie ahead. Water is becoming more scarce, as is both land and labour supply. Add to the mix the challenge of climate change, 
which is leading to drought and land degradation, and the farmers have got it really hard. So how can scientists make it easier for them? Well, let's first find out how rice is currently grown around the world. The stereotypical image of rice being grown is in a paddy field, underwater. But this is not the only way to grow a crop. It dates back to the Neolithic times, emerging from the Yangtze River in southern China. This way of rice farming spread to the surrounding regions in Southeast Asia, northeastern India and beyond. Paddy fields can be built almost anywhere in any terrain, from terrace slopes built into steep hillsides to low-lying river deltas, but they require a huge amount of water for irrigation, and water is something of a scarce resource in many parts of the world. Dr. Varenda Kumar is a senior scientist at IRI. He explained to me how the system works. So, puddle transplanting is the most dominant method, which is grown by 70% of global rice area. So, in, in puddle transplanting method, a nursery is established first for raising rice seedlings. And then when seedlings, they are 25 to 30 days old, then these seedlings are uprooted from the nursery. They are transported to the main field where manually these rice seedlings are transplanted in a flooded puddled field. This is the one of the major advantages uh, of weed control because most of the weeds are sensitive to uh, flooding, so they cannot germinate. And third thing is, in transplanting method, once the crop is established, you can use water for weed control. So the weeds are kept down by the water, cutting off sunlight and oxygen supply vital for photosynthesis. Currently, 70% of rice crops from around the world are grown in this manner. But there is a big problem with this method of cultivation. Basically, methane emission is an end product of what we call anaerobic fermentation of organic matter. So if you create anaerobic condition, which is created by continuous flooding, uh, organic matter in the soil get fermented and then it releases methane emission. Rice cultivation is responsible for around 2.5% of human-induced greenhouse gas emissions. That's the equivalent carbon footprint of international aviation. Rice production is estimated to be responsible for 12% of methane global emissions, simply because the rice is grown below the surface of the water and those weeds trying to choke it, essentially rot. There is, however, good news. 70% of global rice is grown in this way, but there's a new kid on the block, going by the name of direct seeded rice, or DSR. And it doesn't need to be grown in a nursery before being transferred to the paddy field. So if you look at this, is a very labor-intensive, water-intensive and capital-intensive. In contrast, in direct seeding of rice method, rice seeds are directly sown in the main field. So there's no need of nursery raising and there's no need of manually transplanting the rice seedlings. So direct seeding is grown like a wheat crop or like a corn crop. DSR ultimately saves labor, water, and also reduces the cost of cultivation and greenhouse gas emission. But the way rice is grown doesn't end there. Within direct seeded rice, there are three different ways to cultivate. Here's Luke Mankin. He's from BSF based in the USA. The three main ways that you can do direct seeding in rice would be via water seeding, um, via wet seeding, 
and via drill seeding. In the U.S., in the Mid-South, and particularly Arkansas, you see primarily a drill seeded uh, mechanism where this is similar to how wheat is grown worldwide and then uh, they flood the field shortly. It's called flushing so that the, the rice can fully germinate and you know that's how that crop is established. The two wet systems, water seeded and, and wet seeded are a little bit different. You start with the rice seed and you uh, imbibe the seed, which is basically you soak it in water for two days. That gets the seeds to start germinating. My favorite water seeded uh, system is out in California, where they have a plane fly slowly over the field and scatter the seeds out uh, as it goes by. And the seeds fall into a, a shallow field of water where they sink to the bottom and then germinate. And then in the wet seeded system, they, they puddle the field beforehand. And so it's like a big soupy um, mess of mud. And then they just spread the rice seed pre-germinated also over the top of that. You need to keep the, the field uh, flooded at a level that's deep enough for, uh, to help with weed control, but shallow enough to not harm the rice. Currently, of the 160 million hectares of rice cultivated globally, the majority is grown in paddy fields, with only 30% planted directly into the soil. But in the next five to 10 years, the balance will swing in the favor of direct seeded rice. So why switch to direct seeded rice? Well, as we mentioned earlier, the way rice is grown underwater is a major contributor to greenhouse gases. And so switching to DSR makes a big difference to the amount of methane emitted. But there are other benefits, as Verenda told me. The, the labor scarcity, water scarcity, and the cost of cultivation are the three major drivers forcing farmers to make this switch from transplanting to direct seeding. It's easy to switch as this is much simpler method. If you remove the water, you remove the weed control. Here's Luke on how to control those weeds. Rice evolved from a swap plant. So, you know, it, it likes the water, but in general, if you don't have the water, you have more weeds, and then you have to have another way of dealing with the weeds. And so this is where the expertise of BASF steps in. Controlling weeds in a rice crop is not easy because the weeds look very similar to the crop itself. The primary weed of rice is weedy rice, which is really a, a feral rice. It is what was previously domestic rice that has escaped and become a weed. One of the traits linked to weediness is um, a red uh, a pericarp, uh, which makes the grain pinkish. Now, when people are buying rice, they want white rice. The bigger issue is how much uh, yield it robs away from the domestic crop. Uh, so in a, a field infested with weedy rice, you lose yield like significantly in a bad field it can be 60 to 70 percent yield loss then on top of that it's peppered with these pink grains and the farmer gets docked at the mill because the mill has to either optically sort those rice grains into white and pink or they mill it more to get the pink layer off and that causes more breakage 
people want whole rice. Uh, in the U.S., we call the Brokens Brewers Rice because most of it goes to make beer. In fact, in the USA, a lot of the brewer's rice is snapped up by Budweiser. Bud Light uses rice as its source of a fermentable sugar during its brewing process. To tackle the weedy rice, BASF launched Clearfield. Now, this is the science part, so hang on in there. It's going to get very technical. Uh, Clearfield was launched in the U.S. in uh, 2002. It's a fairly simple system. There may be some additional herbicides added in for burn down. About two weeks after the crop's up, you apply the first application. That's a herbicide that gives you nice broad spectrum control of dicots and monocots. And then that gives you another two weeks, basically, of residual control. And then there's a second application of New Path or Beyond at that point. And then that can get you on to, to the permanent flood. And to add to the mix, the Provisio rice system. This was introduced to work hand in hand with Clearfield. Here we need to, to separate Clearfield and Provisia because they're different chemistries. It has both what, what's called contact activity. It's absorbed through the leaf and kills directly that way. But then it also has some soil residual activity, which is it absorbing in from the soil into the roots of the, of the weed and controlling them that way. It doesn't move with the water, unlike some of the other herbicides where as soon as you get it in contact with water, it's spreading in, in places that you don't want. Provisia, on the other hand, is it's a lot less stable in the environment, so it's only contact. Erie and BASF have been working together to try and improve yields for farmers by developing herbicide-tolerant rice hybrids. They've established a global consortium to achieve the common goal of helping farmers move towards direct seeded rice. So far, IRI and BASF are working with 25 other organisations on the project. Meanwhile, Verenda is optimistic that the tide is turning in favour of direct seeded rice. Right now, 30% area is in the direct seeding, 70% uh, is uh, transplant rice globally. Down the road, probably in the next uh, 10 years or so, uh, we expect the reverse. Probably 70% area would be under direct seeding and 30% uh, may be in transplanting. If you look at Southeast Asia, in many countries, it's already direct seeding, like Cambodia, Malaysia, India, China, Indonesia, uh, Bangladesh, are still dominated by a transplanting method. And in these countries also, the transition is happening. And giving example of India, they depend on migrant labor from uh, eastern India. So because of lockdown, the labor migrated back to their hometown and there was a labor crisis. Like the government, even the farmers are looking, how are we going to grow rice? And then they emphasize on direct seeding. They ramped up the, the process. And because of those labor scarcity, just in one year, in Punjab alone, 25% of total rice area was brought under direct seeding. And these are areas where groundwater depletion is a big, big issue. And roughly the cost of cultivation, because you reduce the cost of cultivation in transplanting, so you roughly save about 200 US dollar per hectare. So huge saving in cost of cultivation. China would be very quick, I think. I, I will not be surprised that in next five years, more than 50% area 
would be under direct seeding. The stakes are high. The environment could suffer if the situation remains the same. Verenda stressed to me the importance of the switch to DSR. Direct seeding is one approach of reducing greenhouse gas emission. Because in Asia, rice is one of the major staple crop grown in large area. And rice contribute about 10% of the global methane emission. Direct seeding is an important entry point to mitigate greenhouse gas emission and to mitigate climate change. However, uh, from if you look at from the farmer perspective, this is not probably their uh, major driver. For them, the economics. But for policymaker and from scientist, scientist point of view, uh, we are looking this as an entry point to address climate change issue as well, to mitigate climate change issue. The impact of rice on the global environment cannot be underestimated simply because it feeds so many people and the production will continue as it currently is for the next few years at least. But we wanted to end today with a farmer. Rosalia Ramirez grows rice in the Philippines. She has made the switch from transplanted rice in those puddled fields that Verenda was talking about to direct seeded rice. I wanted to know how it has affected the way she works and if she has seen any improvement in her production. I was born from a farming family, but I was a teacher first. And when my father died, I took over our farm. When I was young, I saw my family using the transplanting method. But as I grew older, we used direct seeded. As we grew, we adapted to whatever kind of technology was available at those times. Rice farming is not an easy job, but you cannot give up, even if it is hard. There is a way. And we don't always plant on the farm, so there's not always back pain. Here in Candelaria, there are many factories. The next generation does not want to go into farming. So if you need to farm one hectare, you will only need one sower. But if you use transplanted rice, you will need more people. Direct seeded rice is a cheaper way to farm nowadays. I think it's easier to farm now because there are many pesticides available and you can use a variety of fertilizers. The only difficulty is the price of grain, which sometimes can get very low, so it cannot compensate the investment and efforts of the farmers. That's what should be regulated, lessen the imports, and people should consume the products that we produce here. So to sum up, transplanted rice is good, but no one wants to do it, because the people nowadays and the children, instead of farming, like electronics and to work in factories, no one wants to farm. So farming doesn't have to stop, there is a way of continuing by using the broadcast method of sowing. Growing rice is hard. It can be dirty, back-breaking work, and so with such tough conditions and all of the extra challenges farmers face, the scarcity of water and the lack of labour, it's no wonder farmers are choosing a slightly easier method of growing the crop. As Rosalia said, youngsters are more interested in electronics and factory work. And so, as we look ahead to our next episode, we'll be discovering ways that rice growers are adapting to having to deal with less water availability. Everything we do is based on using less water to achieve better outcomes. All water used to irrigate crops is recycled, not just once, but multiple times. And how do we keep our youngsters interested in the industry? There are so many innovations and also many interactions with various type of people like uh, consumers. So 
the farming thing itself is really uh, exciting and uh, attractive to the uh, younger peoples, actually. That's coming in the next episode of The Science Behind Your Salad. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.